Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, Daryl Bricker, the president of Ipsos from London on the victory by Boris Johnson and the Conservatives there. We're looking at Canada's Conservative Party and their search, tremendous search, for a new leader. Doug Weed is the author of Inside Trump's White House. And Mr. Weed was given on-the-record interviews by the president and his family and by presidential advisors. Adam Stiebel and Cassia Zelig with us. Mr. Stiebel is 91 years of age. When he was 10, he was a little boy in Poland who was being hunted by the Nazis. He was taken in by a Polish farmer who saved him for three years. And uh, Mr. Stiebel's now 91. He will be joined by Cassia Zelig. She's the granddaughter of the farmer who saved his life. They met for the first time today. And you'll hear the conversation between the two of them. And Dr. Gordon Holden, the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, on how Canada must respond to Beijing. Joining us from England, where he has been for the British election, is Daryl Bricker, CEO, President of Ipsos Public Affairs, the author of Empty Planet. Um, and we talked to, uh, to Daryl about that, the shock of global population decline. Daryl, thank you for taking the time. Polling was very accurate, right, heading into the British uh, election. Uh, it was a bit of a knee knocker, Roy. Every time it is, but uh, yeah, this time uh, it, it was uh, it was it was pretty accurate. I mean, it, it's funny. I was seeing uh, you know articles uh, the next day saying you know shock election outcome. It was like who was shocked? <laughs> Basically, the, the the polling was 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 pretty pretty much smack on, and and uh, there really wasn't any doubt, particularly in the last four or five days, that the the Johnson uh, campaign was going to win a majority. Why did? I want to ask you about Andrew Scheer, of course, and the Conservative Party. But why did the Johnson Conservatives win the way they won? They won in uh, the Midlands and the north of England, the uh, the working class area of the country, which is traditionally labor. They won uh, seats that the labor had held since 1922. Um, and, and, and yet they lost London. They didn't do well at all in Scotland. Why did why did it turn out the way it did in the UK? Well, Johnson, first of all, ran a pretty disciplined campaign, and anybody who was considering voting for the Conservative Party really only had one choice. Uh, for example, the Brexit Party did really poorly in the election campaign, so there wasn't a lot of vote splitting on the right side of the uh, of the ballot. But on the left side, there was a fair amount of splitting. Uh, the, the biggest benefactors from that splitting, obviously, were the Scottish Nationalists did quite well on, on election night, but both the Lib Dems and the, and the Labour Party did poorly. Now, the interesting thing, Roy, is that in English politics, British politics, uh, it tended to, for the longest time to be very class-based. So the working class would vote for the Labour Party, uh, people who uh, were more middle class, upper middle class and uh, obviously more elite would uh, more likely vote for the, uh, for the Conservative Party. Those, those boundaries are more or less broken down now. And a lot of working-class people are now voting for the Conservatives, and particularly younger, better-educated, more urban people are voting for the Labour Party. Uh, do they have a real national unity? Not Well, I don't know if it's a crisis or not. It could be, I suppose, once uh, once Johnson moves forward with, with Brexit. Are they facing a national unity crisis? Well, there's two potential uh, difficulties or bumps in the road that they'll face on this. One is the Scottish nationalist uh, movement. Uh, but the interesting thing on the Scottish nationalist movement is when you really start looking at what people are saying, it's a little bit like um, uh, how nationalists were 
in the province of Quebec who could see that they could vote, for example, say for the Bloc Québécois in national politics, but they would vote against a referendum. Or they would vote against actual independence. So there was a lot going on in the Scottish um, voting. And I've heard, I've read a couple of columns of people who uh, uh, watch this, uh, little, uh, try to watch this from Canada, talking about you know how representative it is of separatism. Nah, it's more complicated than that. It was, it was, it was actually as much a rejection of the Labour Party and its leader as it was of anything that had to do with the, the place of Scotland in the United Kingdom. So it's a, it's a more it's it's a it's a complicated issue. The other one, of course, is um, is directly affected by Brexit, and it's it's the relationship between Northern and Southern Ireland. So between uh, uh, the the Irish state and, and, and the Republic, and uh, there seems to be some uh, desire now to at least have a conversation about maybe putting the uh, the two Irelands together. At least it's not as controversial as it was before. So there's a few things bouncing around here that. Uh, over the longer term, might be the unintended consequences of the uh, of the uh, of the Johnson win combined with uh, going forward with Brexit. Okay, so polling does polling say that uh, the Johnson he has the constitutional power, of course, being prime minister of a majority government, he can do it. But does polling suggest that he has the popular support, sufficient popular support, to move ahead on his schedule with Brexit? Well, that's that's the question that he he essentially put on the table for. For voters to consider, so he would argue that he probably does. But the the Brexit issue remains incredibly controversial in uh, in uh, in the UK, and um, uh, the public is still very divided on this. The funny thing is, you know, if you look at Twitter or if you look at a lot of the conversation that takes place among the media, particularly people sitting in other countries commenting on British politics, you would say, oh, you know, how could anybody possibly vote for Brexit? There's a lot of people who do support it here, at least half the population, and they won the one referendum that they had on this topic. So he feels like he's in a, in a pretty strong position to move ahead with it. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like, uh, Daryl, they, they had the referendum. The referendum was for Brexit. And uh, it just seemed to me watching, and I watched until late at night, it was very entertaining to see Boris Johnson up on the stage with Lord Buckethead. Um, it, yeah, they have, that's a great tradition here <laughs> in the UK. Can you, you know, they, they, every candidate gets on the stage in their local constituency with whoever the, 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 the candidates are, and they all stand up there as the results are announced. And yeah, you get Elmo and Lord Buckethead and <laughs> a whole bunch of other creatures that, uh, that show up, yes. Uh, all of that aside, uh, it's a very serious situation in in the UK. It affects uh, not only all of Europe and, and Britain, but there's also a, Canada's in play as well and, and all of North America because of pending trade deal changes. Daryl, I'd like to ask you about, uh, of course, about Mr. Scheer and the Conservative Party of Canada and where that's headed. Can I take a quick break and uh, talk to you about that? Absolutely. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Daryl Bricker, the President and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's in London, has been there for the British election. And in this country, of course, the news is the uh, impending leaving as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada of Andrew Scheer. What next for the Conservatives? Daryl Bricker is uh, still with us, the President and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. They've done fantastic polling. Uh, heading into October the 21st and have a real sense of what Canadians are saying. Uh, Daryl, there's there's sort of mixed emotions about Mr. Shear leaving. Some people are saying he was pushed too early, that it wasn't fair, that it was elites within the Conservative Party who caused this. Other people are saying that it was just time for him to go, that he, the turnover has to be rapid after what happened. 
What do you think the majority of Canadians are saying? What's what's your polling suggest Canadians' reaction is? Well, they, they never really warmed to Mr. Scheer. So if you were a Tory partisan, you uh, probably uh, supported Mr. Scheer out of the necessity of supporting the Conservative leader. But there was really no Scheer mania. It wasn't uh, what, what happened during the election campaign, uh, um, you know, what... The, the negative part of what happened in the election campaign, some of it can be placed at, you know, his feet. He was never really able to uh, put together a, a, either a campaign or perform himself well enough on the campaign to really convince people that he should replace uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, the truth is that Prime Minister Trudeau also ran, ran a not a great campaign uh, and barely survived on, on October the 21st. In fact, lost the popular vote. So, um, Mr. Scheer... I think under normal circumstances would have been seen as doing a reasonably good job. But given how diminished the Prime Minister was, there was an expectation that he would, uh, that uh, Mr. Scheer would perform better than he did, and he simply wasn't able to make it happen. But what I will also uh, add, Roy, is it's not just the fact that he lost, it's the way he lost. So that the, the Conservative Party really finds itself in a situation where its footprint looks more like the old Reform Party and look like, looks like the Conservative Party, the winning Conservative Party, uh, able to form a national government that Stephen Harper was able to put together in 2011. So it was a combination of all of these things, but ultimately I think it was that last point that really did him in. Mm-hmm. I was uh, actually thinking about Stephen Harper in 2011 and before that, and thinking about what Andrew Shear had said about having the popular vote and having put more uh, Tory bums into the seats in, in Parliament, and it sounded to me, and I had the, this is in my editorial comment on RoyGreenShow.com, it sounded to me like uh, a, a team that had lost Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final and was skating around the ice and claiming victory because they'd had more shots on goal. And my point was that's hardly inspiring when the other team is lifting the cup. And I think that's what Andrew Shear faced. But now the situation becomes more muddied because of the story about the education funding for his children, that will unravel, as I'm sure it must. But what do the Conservatives have to do now, Daryl, as far as selecting their next leader is concerned? What must they do if they're going to have a reasonable or a really good chance of winning the next election? Well, you know, John Ibbotson and I wrote a book called The Big Shift about uh, five years ago, I think it came out, in which the, the, the plan for winning a Conservative national government uh, is uh, is very well laid out, and you you have to win. The new way for conservatives to win in the country is they have to find a way to sure win in Western Canada, but they also have to find a way to live to, to win in the suburbs of Ontario, and also to find some place in Quebec if it's possible. But really, it's about winning the suburbs of Ontario. So what was difficult, really difficult for Mr. Shear was that um, he. Uh, the, the current incarnation of the Conservative Party, the smarter people who are in the in the party, look at what the playbook is, which is the one that I just described, and did not see him as being able to make that that uh, put that coalition together. So uh, they need to find a leader who can do that. Now, I, you know, we can't say it's all about personality politics, and unfortunately, when we get into these sorts of things, we really do, uh, you know, start to look at personalities. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is conservative pol- uh, uh, conservative voters don't respond the same way to personalities as, uh, as progressive voters do. Uh, so we can't go all Ken Campbell here either, you know, looking for the right CV simply to perform a, uh, you know, a particular task. The person actually has to be up to the job. Yeah. Uh, and, and frankly, that's what a leadership campaign is about. 
given that there is no obvious front runner at this uh, stage of the game, given what the challenge is, which is to demonstrate that you can win in central Canada, not just in western Canada, that you're aligned with the uh, you know, with with the values of the country. A, a good leadership campaign with some good candidates in it should provide the opportunity for somebody to rise to that challenge, I would think. Does your polling indicate that Canadians will be watching very carefully what unfolds between now and the actual coronation of the next Conservative Party leader, or will Canadians start to pay attention when, in fact, there is a new leader? Well, I think people who are interested in the Conservative Party will will, uh, pay attention. But those key swing voters... um, you know, the, the leadership contest, depending on how it's covered by the media, depending on what happens, um, may be able to sort of penetrate into the, the people who aren't, uh, you know, the political caucus the people who are really obsessed with politics. Uh, so um, maybe they'll see a bit of it. But uh, really, when people get a, a their very strong impression of, of what they think of a political leader is usually during an election campaign. So, for example, Andrew Scheer. Uh, um, he had his chance during that campaign, and people were willing to give him a chance to, um, you know, to, to come forward and be a potential replacement for Mr. Trudeau, and they really never paid any attention to the head-to-head competition until that point. Yeah. I, I've often felt that it's perhaps more difficult to satisfy the conservative voters in this country about who the party uh, leader is going to be than it is to win an election. Well, you know, uh, the, the Liberal Party is, is, is a really interesting contraption, right? The thing that they put together, what they used to call the Natural Governing Party. Right. It's really based on power. I mean, there might be some regional differences within uh, the, 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 the party itself, but you don't really get strong ideological differences within the party. Yeah. They put all that, si- that aside for the purposes of winning an election. They're really focused on power. The Conservative Party's not like that. They actually have distinct elements of the conservative coalition that actually do care about uh, certain values questions, or they do care about certain policy priorities. They do care about regional issues as well. So it's a harder coalition to pull together. Daryl, always great talking to you. Thank you for the insights. Really appreciate it, both on both sides of the Atlantic. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Ray. Daryl Bricker, the author of The Big Shift, uh, and also president and CEO, of course, of Ipsos Public Affairs. When we come back, We'll go to England for a few minutes and get the British response to Johnson's win. My guest, Doug Weed. Now, Mr. Weed's book is Inside Trump's White House, the real story of his presidency. The history of the Trump White House with the president and his staff speaking openly and on the record with my guest. A tweet from Donald Trump reads this way. Great writer and historian Doug Weed has written a true, not fake news account of what's going on in Washington and the White House. His new book, Inside Trump's White House, is an incredible description of a very exciting and successful time in our country's history. Buy it. A little bit background on Doug Weed. Former advisor to two American presidents, served as special assistant to the president in the George H.W. Bush White House. He's interviewed six American presidents, seven first ladies, 19 presidential children, and 12 presidential siblings. He's also the co-founder of Mercy Corps, which has distributed $2 billion worth of food and medicine around the world. Doug Weed joins us on the Roy Green Show. First of all, Doug, on the the Mercy Corps, well done. That's that's an amazing achievement. Thank you. Well, it's what what they achieved and what many hundreds and thousands of people associated with Mercy Corps 
have done. It's uh, truly remarkable. You see numbers like that, and you see and you know the impact that uh, the food and the medicine will have on peoples around the world, and it just makes you makes you feel better about uh, about human nature. And these days, human nature is often questioned. Let me let me mention a book review about inside the Trump White House. Here's what it reads. The real story of Donald J. Trump's first administration has been written by Doug Weed, author of Inside Trump's White House, The Real Story of His Presidency. So you've had a lot of positive responses. People on the left are not so enamored, but you knew that was going to happen. Even with your conservative credentials and your history of working with U.S. presidents, how did you obtain access to Mr. Trump at the White House and his family, and what rules were you given? Well, it, it took a year for them to decide, uh, <laughs> and uh, I initially sat down with Ivanka Trump, and I said, you know, in a couple hundred years when you're gone and your children are gone, <laughs> they're still going to be writing books about the Trump family and theatrical performances. But whether you're, you're loved or hated, if you're viewed like the Borgias or some evil, powerful, wealthy family or you're celebrated like the Kennedys, it's all going to come down to primary sources, not anonymous sources. But what did the president say? What do you, Ivanka, say? What did the family say? That's what history is going to be looking for and what they'll judge you by. Someone needs to write that book, and I would like to write that book. <laughs> it took them about a year, Roy, to finally open the doors and say, okay, we've decided you can do it. And you could speak with President Trump and his family and his advisors on the record. Nobody said, uh, uh, this is off the record, Doug. We're not going to do this. It's for you to write about but not quote. You know what? There were times where they did say, uh, now this is off the record. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that did happen from time to time with sources that I interviewed. But almost all of it, uh, you know, 90% of it is on the record. And I ended up, Roy, with 600 pages of transcripts of interviews with the president and his family. So it, uh, it's a lot for the record. Let me ask you the rote question. What's he like? What do you mean when you write of Donald Trump? He never complains and he never explains. Well, that gets him in trouble. I think that's a strength and a weakness, as it's true with everybody sometimes. Uh, your strength can also be your greatest weakness and vice versa. He, he, he picks that up. Disraeli was the first who really talked about that, the great British prime minister. Uh, and uh, Trump doesn't say where he picked it up, but it's clearly his philosophy. And it, it, it hurts him because... Often, if he will stop and carefully explain why he said what he said or when he said it, it would uh, it would answer some of the misconceptions. But he doesn't do that. He just moves on, and then there's advantages to it too. He just keeps moving. So he he's then essentially the same Donald Trump in the White House that he was outside the White House, but with a different audience and certainly more. Uh, I was going to use the word supervision, but I can't use that word with with more with more uh, coverage and interest. Fair statement. Well, uh, I was. Uh, what fascinated me was I went in suspecting that some of this chaos that I had been hearing about and seeing was a little more calculated than uh, the public would 
uh, guess, because that's the way it was in the Bush White House where, when I worked in the Bush White House. Mm-hmm. But I came out of the experience believing that almost all of it's calculated, that he blows something up like NAFTA, for example, or NATO. He blows it up and the media goes crazy and the generals came in and lectured him like he was a little boy. These are our friends. This is our most enduring treaty. This is, And he would argue with them, well, if if they're our friends, why do they lie to us? Why did they sign this agreement and promise to pay this amount and not pay it? And uh, he blows it up, and then he rebuilds it. And uh, NATO is a great example. He's raised $100 billion, uh, and NATO's stronger than it's ever been. So that's his M.O. Let's talk about uh, what's going on right now, the impeachment uh, procedure that's been launched and being stewarded through the House by the Democrats. Uh, so you have that side of it, and the House is going to vote, and uh, and you have the Republicans deriding the impeachment process. Then you have the Mueller report, and I know that you spoke with Mr. Trump, and you spoke to his family about that, and you know what the reaction was. How is he? How does he respond personally to these sorts of, and there are critical mass situations for most people who are observing what's going on. How does he personally respond to this? How does his family respond? Well, he knows that all hell was going to break loose, and it has when he began to deregulate. Regulation, the name of the game is, and always has been, and probably always will be, monopoly. So what happens is companies, especially since the 1960s in America, they use regulations to create monopolies by keeping small businesses from growing and keeping you from starting your own business. And then once they've achieved this monopoly, they sustain it with money from the Fed that you can't get at interest rates you can't get. And they pass when there's a recession they pass, they being the Republicans and the Democrats, they pass a stimulus bill that exempts those monopolies from the very regulations that keep you from starting your business. So it's a game, and they're multinational companies, and they're almost all of them in bed with China. So Donald Trump watched this and experienced it himself in business. Uh, he, when Ivanka and Don Jr. were little kids crawling around his desk, before the internet he was clipping the new york times and underlining stories and filing them and hoping that someday someone would become president and clean all this mess up and nobody did so he decided to run and he warned his children all hell's going to break loose this is going to be war because when he gets in and he begins to deregulate the economy will take off uh with competitive bids with free market uh Uh, participation, but the big companies that own the media and sponsor the media are going to be very angry. So is that where all of this has originated then? In his his mind. mind, That's it. And in my experience, 40 years inside the Bush family working with them, I think that he's right. That's where it is. It's about money. Okay, Doug, hold on, please. We're going to come back with Doug Weed and talk more about uh, his book, Inside uh, uh, Trump's White House, the real story of his presidency. Uh, My guest is Doug Weed. He's the uh, author of the new book, Inside Trump's White House, the real story 
of his presidency. Uh, Mr. Reed, as I mentioned earlier, former advisor to two American presidents, served as special assistant to the president in the George H.W. Bush White House, and uh, was very significantly praised by Ronald Reagan. We played that clip for you. I have so many questions for you, Doug, and uh, we have really relatively little time. So let me get to this. To the, and I want to get back at the uh, what, what conversations you had with Donald Trump. But with this impeachment going forward, is he uh, consumed? Is he worried? Or does he see this as an opportunity to strengthen the Trump brand going into next year's presidential election? You know, he uses everything. That's uh, was a bit that was very interesting to me. He he used Russian collusion, uh, so he's using this impeachment. This has been one of the most accomplished weeks in his presidency. Uh, U.S. Uh, MCA now uh, ready to go. China now ready to go. Parental leave passed. Uh, it's just. Uh, it, it, typical of him. <laughs> I couldn't function that way. I've interviewed six presidents of the United States, and I could tell you every one of them, if they were facing impeachment, they'd go into a bunker mentality. They would close all the hatches, and they'd gather around their closest, most trusted advisors and burn the midnight oil coming up carefully with statements and plans and strategies. He just races forward while the country and the Democrats are distracted. And he did that with Russian collusion. Uh, he, he believes he couldn't have turned the American economy around if it weren't for Russian collusion, which the, the media became obsessed with and allowed him to deregulate. And otherwise, the media would have been all over the deregulation process and tried to block it. So nothing that happened this week, as far as uh, what you just mentioned, the initiatives that were undertaken or completed, that was all planned. I mean, the, the timing is not coincidental. No, the time is not coincidental. I'm not saying he's not hurt. And that's, I'm sure, why the Democrats did what they did to hurt him, because they took a political risk, as you can see in the numbers, and may have hurt themselves as well. But uh, that was the objective. I mean, uh, he defied the experts by winning the nomination and then winning the election, and yeah. even worse to the ego. Uh, is uh, the economic turnaround. The the world's economist, Roy, 100%, there was no outlier. They were completely united uh, that his economic plan would not work. Washington Post said the economy would collapse. It did work, and all of the greatest economists in the world were proven wrong, and I don't think they're very happy about it. Is there a conversation that you had with him that is particularly memorable? You know, you, had, you said you came away with 600 pages of transcript, which is amazing. But is there a moment, was there a moment in all of those encounters with Donald Trump, or maybe with Trump and his, and his family and his kids, was there a moment that really just stuck with you? There were so many, but one... I was afraid you'd was, say that. Go ahead. I know I said I was afraid you were going to say that there were so many, but but you say there's one. Yeah. Well, there was one that comes to mind uh, when you mention it. It was the, when I first walk in the Oval Office, I haven't even sat down. He hadn't even shaken my hand. He's waving these papers above his head, and he says, this is my private correspondence with Kim Jong-un. They didn't want me to let you have this. They They said, I shouldn't give it to you. Uh, but I'm going to let you read it. You can't copy it. You can't take it, but you can't photograph it, but I'm going to let you read it. Uh, 
and then he pointed to two chairs uh, over by the fireplace. He said, right there, I sat with President Barack Obama, and I said, President Obama, what's the biggest problem I'm going to face, and what was your biggest problem as president? And he said, North Korea, you will have a war with North Korea on your watch. And I said, well, Mr. President, have you, have you called him? And he said, no, I haven't called him. Uh, he's a dictator. And then the president looked at me, and he paused, and he repeated Obama's words. He said, I didn't call him. He's a dictator. And then there was a long pause, and Trump said, stupid. So I guess, I guess in Trump, the businessman, if he has a problem with somebody and he gets on the phone and he calls them. So he well, you may have started that. You may have just given him the impetus to make that phone call. Let me ask you this. You speak about uh, President Obama. Donald Trump accused Obama, the Obama White House, of spying on his 2016 campaign and described it as the action as treasonous. What did he tell you about that? Yeah, he actually said that to me, and he didn't. Uh, and he said, "Obama," he said, "what they tried to do, they tried to spy on me." He said, that, "and it's treason." And then he paused, and he said, "Obama." Well, he'd been president of Donald Trump for two years by the time we had that conversation, hmm. so he was beginning to understand the fact that information is currency in the White House. And you don't keep it. You spend it immediately. It loses its value. It melts like snow. So if you hear a secret or you hear information, you pass it quickly. So while I worked in the White House, and occasionally there'd be a gaggle of us who'd say, the president should not know about this. We, he, he needs to have plausible deniability, we would say. That means stupid people must be convinced that he didn't know about it. But anybody smart is going to know that the president knows everything. It's cover your rear end. So for the FBI to launch an investigation of a political opponent on their own, without getting cover, without having the White House okay it in some way with a grunt or a nod, is very, very unlikely. And that's the point Trump was making to me when he, he had kind of come to that conclusion. Yeah. Obama had to know this. And, of course, we have the Inspector General's report this week. I literally have 30 seconds left, so, so Doug, in that 30 seconds, when I, say, when I say fake news, what do you say? Well, Speaking for I, Donald Trump. Know, yeah, so much of the stories were, were that I carried with me into the White House were wrong. I I listened to the principals, and they said, no, it didn't happen. I put the other people in the room that uh, previous authors had claimed were in the room. They said, yes, I was in the room, but he didn't say this. He said this. So it was good to get some. The real stories are better than the okay. fake ones. Doug, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Roy. Good talking to you. Doug Weed is the author of Inside Trump's White House, The Real Story of His Presidency. It's a new new book, and it's getting tremendous exposure. Now this story, which has really touched so many people. I tweeted it out a couple of days ago, and the response uh, was, was just amazing. Not just on Twitter, but so many emails from people who wanted to write more than 240 characters about how touched they were to know that Mr. Adam Stiebel, 91-year-old Holocaust survivor, or survivor of the Nazi invasion of, of Poland. Uh, he was 10 years of age when he was on his own 
a little kid, 10 years of age, trying to evade the SS and, uh, and the Nazi war machine that was intent on murdering Jews. And uh, imagine that, 10-year-old kid. And a Polish farmer came across the little boy and took him in and, and took care of him for the duration of the war. Now, you know that had the farmer, his name was uh, Yannick Chelon, had he been discovered by the SS, things wouldn't have gone too well for Mr. Chelon. But he claimed the child as his own. And something remarkable has happened. Something truly remarkable has happened, and it happened today. I'll talk to us about that before I speak with Adam Stiebel and uh, the granddaughter of the uh, of the farmer. Ellen Beaumont joins me. She's uh, with the Holocaust Survivor Memorial Program of the Israeli Foundation. And it was through the Israeli Foundation that I found out about this incredible story. Ellen, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Roy, for having me. Let's let's just uh, have you share with us. I mean, I talked about it a bit. You know more of what's gone on. You know what the emotion has been, and we'll we'll hear from from our the principals involved in a moment. But just f- uh, fill in any blanks that I may have left out here of this remarkable story. Well, it is truly an incredible story. I mean, I've known about the story for a number of years. The um, Azrieli Foundation um, published uh, Adam Stibble's testimony together with his wife Rachel. St- Stibble, who had her memoir published in one volume uh, in 2007. And the story then, of course, was quite unbelievable to, you know, hear about the young child who was able to uh, somehow survive the war with with the uh, help of a, of a righteous man who risked his own family, uh, his own family's life, had he been caught. So to, to come full circle and meet the, the granddaughter of the rescuer was quite amazing to witness that today and, you know, truly uh, an, an incredible experience, I'm sure, for, for both of them as well as someone who's, you know, watching this. So it, it really was quite an amazing day. Today. Okay, let me let me put you back on hold. I'm going to come back to you in a minute or a few minutes. Sure. We're going to put uh, Ellen back on the on hold, and now we're going to speak with uh, with our true principals involved in this remarkable story. Mr. Adam Stiebel joins us, and uh, Kasia Shellong Towers is with us as well. Mr. Stiebel, it's an honor to speak with you, sir. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm I'm excited because I met uh, the grand the granddaughter from Jan Shellong. They saved my life. Yeah, I, I I mean, people across this country are so taken by this story of what's happened, and you're meeting the granddaughter today. So let me say hello as well to Kasia Shellong, the granddaughter of uh, Mr. Yannick Shellong, who, who, who took in Mr. Stiebel. Kasia, how are you today? Hi, Roy. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Well, just great. I mean, I, you you met Mr. Stiebel for the first time today, right? That's right. A few hours ago. <laughs> So uh, tell us, please, how it came about that, that you, because you decided to try to find him a number of um, years ago, right? Uh, yes. Well, it wasn't really me. It was uh, my family back in Poland. Um, we just had a few um, funerals in September and uh, um, slowly just, uh, you know, uh, in, in Borkin, that village where uh, my grandfather lived. 
and also uh, on the 1st of November we uh, visit Grace and um, all of that just uh, uh, brought up some reflection and, and uh, one time my dad was visiting my brother um, and they just uh, you know started research. Uh, we've been uh, searching and trying to look for Adam for many many years especially in 80s and 90s uh, especially my grandma um, but unfortunately, um, there was no connection at that time. And, um, you know, with the, all the information that we have right now on the Internet, uh, my dad um, definitely remembered the name Adam Stibel and, you know, through Google search and um, the foundation that we found. And, uh, yeah, we, we that was one thing that was amazing to find. But then when we found out that um, he's currently like an hour away from, from where I live was really <laughs> amazing and unbelievable. That is truly, truly remarkable. Mr. Stibble, tell us about the circumstance under which you, for the first time, met Kasha's grandfather. What were you, you were 10 years old and trying to survive. What was that like? Well, um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad Kasha's grandfather helped me, I would say, thanks to to her grandfather, I can talk with you, I'm still here, because he actually gave me my life, Other, otherwise I would not be able to survive the war, and, and I'm so grateful for him, and all the time when I was in his place, he treated me like his own son. Um, and I, I felt this, not, I was not like a worker, I'm like others, they working for money. He, uh, he treated me, took me in so, and gave me so much uh, courage. And, and I uh, never forget, and always I, he's, he's not that for me, he's always alive for me, because he gave me my, my life, because my parents could not help me. He did, he, he took this um, uh, task, what my parents should, should do to help me to survive the war. Because my parents, uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, they already gone. They were not alive anymore. Oh so this, this young Shalom Kanielka is in my life, is going to stay as long as we'll be alive. You have said, that's just remarkable, Remarkable story. Uh, you've said Kasha's grandfather saved your life many times. Can you tell us about one of those times? He he saved my life uh, many times. Maybe I will say one example from the saving quote, he saved my life. In the, in the wartime, um, um, like, like in 44, they used to come, those underground um, cell, and whatever, fighting with the German, Polish, Polish, uh, Polish uh, people. And sometimes they were sleeping over there once in a while. And they could see I was sleeping in the bar summertime with them together. And in 1940, after the war, 45, the war finished, 1946, suddenly a guy came from those guys who used to come in the wartime to sleep over in the bar. He came over, 
in he he slept in the bar but in summertime I was sleeping in the same bar in hay and in the morning he went and Jan Scholling told me Yusef, because my name was Yusef Ritsuniak, I had a Polish name I adopted a Polish name uh, and he told Yusef you know this guy yesterday what he slept in the bar he came to get rid for me because he was afraid he might talk and I told him, please, let him live. This, after the war, a year, let him live. He will not talk. He will not say nothing. He's, I guarantee you, I guarantee you my life, my whole family, my, my, my uh, old uh, house and everything. I guarantee you, if it's anything, you, ha- you know I'm here. And somehow he convinced him and he left. He didn't take away my life. Oh my goodness! This is one example. There are many examples. You, what I am. Oh, he is always to, in my memory. I never f- cannot forget him in my memory. He bought Jan and Anielka, Shalom. They were so nice people. And even in this house was living the great grandparents from Kasha. They were nice people too, and I, uh, I can tell you, this is my parents. I would say. And I was always talking when I married. I had children. Always they know the story uh, of this Shellong, of this, um, uh, 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 this is the village Borki. They they can tell you the story because all the time I used to tell them this story. And uh, I'm so happy I. I uh, I met the granddaughter Kasha, and I feel to her like 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 she would be my daughter. Yeah, right sure. away, I have this. Uh, the name Shalom is like uh, my family. You know, when we hear you speak about what happened, and somebody came to the farm to take your life because they were worried that you were going to talk or you were going to give away what what was going on. And then the Nazis would take action. Yeah. No, people people don't understand. I mean, we no matter what we see on television or what we hear or what we read, we can't possibly know just how incredibly dangerous and how inhuman that situation was. And to survive in the way that you did and for Mr. Shellong to protect you as he did, it speaks... I, I mean, it's, it's, it speaks to the very, very, very best of what is available in human, in human kindness. Just absolutely remarkable. Please, uh, can, let me ask you to both hold on because I want to talk to you for a little bit longer. We will take a break here and we'll come back and we'll talk some more with Mr. Stibble and with Kasha Shellong and we'll touch base again with Ellen Beaumont. This is really, really an incredible story, true story. And after 72 years, the granddaughter of Mr. Shellong meets Mr. Stibble today in Ontario. Okay, let's get uh, let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Adam Stibble and uh, with uh, Kasha Shellong. And what we're hearing is just so incredible. Kasha, as you're hearing Mr. Stibble yeah. talk about this, talk yeah. about your grandfather the way he is, know that somebody came to the house 
looking to kill Mr. Stibble because they were worried he was going to tell on them and they were all going to be suffering at the hands of the Nazis. Well, as you're hearing this, uh, how are you, how, how, I mean, how are you reacting to all of this? Uh, first of all, feeling pride. I'm so, uh, like, I knew my grandparents were amazing people and uh, I heard um, some of the stories from my dad uh, who heard from my grandparents. Uh so I, I, I know they did it. To hear it today from Adam, um, when we met, um, the, the stories when my um, grandfather or grandma together, they, they saved his life. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's, seriously, I think it's going to take me some time to, to comprehend <laughs> what, uh, what there, is happening. Is there, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is there one story particularly that you remember your grandfather telling? Um, you know what, again, it was mostly, um, from my dad, uh, my grandparents, what I remember the most, um, were the articles, uh, with, uh, Adam's information when they were looking for him. That was basically until, uh, my grandma passed away. Uh, however, from my dad, um, what I remember the most is that, um, my granddad would always, um, compare him to, to Adam uh, and would complain about, uh, you know, uh, my dad not doing such a great job, <laughs> not as good as Adam would do, mm. uh, even though my dad was born um, way after Adam uh, left the village. But uh, my dad, my, my granddad always remembered him like, like his son, right? And he compared his own sons to him um, because he always said that Adam was like such a fast learner. He was such a hard worker. And uh, apparently my uh, that was not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you, I mean, I could have you both speak to each other if you wish on the radio so people can hear you across Canada. Would you mind doing that for just maybe tell us what it was like as you met today? Would that be all right? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, so go ahead. Let me just have you speak to each other. Okay. Hello, Adam. Hi, um, Kasha. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm still, I'm, I'm still in shock <laughs> about what happened this morning. Well, um, I'm so excited to to meet you, and I, um, I, I, I think this is a dream. I still don't believe yeah. it. Um, I'm so uh, excited with everything because I knew your grandparents and. Because you are Shalong, I already, I have this love to you, like, like to the family. Because yes, and because and I do feel like I already belong to to the family. It was really amazing to meet your whole family, your your wife and and your daughters. Um, like it was, it was really um, like like you said. I already feel like I belong to the family. So thank you so much for having me over today. It was really great to to um, to meet you in person and and to hear all this amazing stories and, and funny stories. It was really a great time and, and, and sometimes a great laughter and, and a cry. So it was really amazing. So thank you for that. Yeah. I wish I wish uh, your grandfather would be here. Then I would tell him everything. In that time, I could not identify myself who I am. I was mm-hmm. keeping in, 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 my, in my heart because I could not share with him. I would like to share with him because in that time I could not share with him the identity. Yeah. I have to, yes. but he, but he somehow, he, 
he took me in with the open hands, and he was so good to me. He, I was not like a like a, he like others. They were workers um, getting a contract for so much money to take care of, as a shepherd. I mm-hmm. was I was feeling myself like their own son. They were treating me like their own. Well, I have to say to you both, thank you so much. We feel privileged to be part of this in some small way, to hear you mm-hmm. share with us the emotion and the, the, the incredible reality of you meeting as you did today. It's a privilege mm-hmm. for us to be able to, to hear you both and in, 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 in a small way to participate in this mm-hmm. incredible day for you both. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you'll be spending more time together and just one of the most really heartwarming stories I've ever broadcast in more than 50 years as a broadcaster. So thank you both for joining thank us. You. Thank you very thank much, you so much for listening to the story. All right. Take good care. There's uh, Kasia Shellong and Adam Stibble. Uh, China. China in the news this week. Parliament passed. Seems like China's in the news every week. Parliament passed a conservative motion to create a committee on Canada-China relations. And uh, the Angus Reid Institute released um, polling information which shows that unfavorable views of China are rising in Canada And uh, Canadians are split over the wisdom of having the rest of the CFO um, of Huawei. And uh, Canadians, by majority, want to see Canada raise the issue of human rights more significantly with the Chinese government. We're also, in this country, we're very concerned about the detention of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor um, under unclear pretenses. And uh, that has complicated the trade and investment relationship between the two nations, writes the Angus Reid Institute. Well, to speak to us about the relationship Canada has with China and what we maybe ought to be doing going forward, and I remember two Chinese ambassadors have told Canada that if you pursue the issue of human rights um, in Hong Kong that's, or in, our, in mainland China, that's going to be a problem for Canada. And they've had some other concerns that they've expressed, and you know some people see it as threats by China on Canada. Professor Gordon Holden is the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, and last month he led a Canadian delegation to China, and I understand the delegation included two former federal cabinet ministers. Professor Holden, thank you very much for the time, and you were in China, China just a matter of weeks ago, right? That's correct, in early November, and uh, I had... Um Actually, three former cabinet ministers um, from from the Liberals. I had Alan Rock, a former justice minister. It was very useful talking about the legal issues. And uh, I had uh, um, uh, two conservatives as well. Um, and I think that gave a certain weight to it. We had a couple of former deputy ministers of international trade and foreign affairs, uh, former ambassador to China. Um, and we met behind closed doors, which I think helped a bit because you could get the Chinese side off there standard talking points. Uh, while we were there, they lifted the ban on pork and beef. I'm not saying that the two things were linked. It may have just been coincidental. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we certainly didn't solve the really big issue, which is tension, as you mentioned, of the two Canadians. Right. 
let me let me per- let me pursue that with you uh, in, in in some detail and the questions I have for you. Now, what was the what was the um, what was the gist of the mission? And and that's a pretty high powered uh, delegation that you took to China. Is that required in order to get China? You say you know get them off their talking points. Do they need that kind of representation from from Canada and China to get them to pay attention? That's a very good question. I mean, it's it's a well organized government party, really parties behind everything that government does over there. If you go over there and talk in detail, the word will filter upwards through the party system. But if you've got people of bigger clout, a greater clout, like Alan Rock and John Baird, uh, senior people, former senior former ministers in liberal and conservative government, I think it's easier to catch their ear. And while you may not be talking, we talked to very senior people on the Chinese side who matched our delegation. Uh, I can guarantee you that, or I'm confident that, um, very senior people in the Chinese government heard our words. And on the tricky questions, such as the two Michaels, our two Michaels, uh, the, I was very pleased to see that the two, party, two parties spoke with one voice. There was no, you couldn't slip a piece of paper between them uh, in terms of uh, anger about the tension of the Canadians. And I think that also sent a signal as well but I was glad to hear the Chinese hear uh, that uh, there was a pretty well universal view in this country. I'd like to think universal that China's out of line on that on those arrests. In, in general terms, how would you describe how China views Canada? Are we a useful tool in their increasingly conflicting relationship with the United States? Are we a viable trading partner? Are we something else? I think we're we're both. I think the fact that yes. We're small in their eyes. And quite frankly, I don't think we loom as large as we did once upon a time. We are one of the first countries back in 1970 to help break China out of its diplomatic isolation. We sold wheat to them, conservative government to begin with, and the liberals following that back in the 50s and the 60s. I think those things are not forgotten and were very important. But they're a big boy on the global scene now, and they um, perhaps need us less. They definitely need us less. They've got strong relationships. They're happier, in my view, often dealing with what they see as their counterpart, the United States. Not that they get along well with the United States, but that's who they compare themselves to. We're seen, I think, as uh, not a nuisance, helpful at times, problematic at times. Just we don't loom large in their view any longer. Now, successive ambassadors from Beijing have warned uh, I, I might even say virtually threatened Canada. They've warned of consequences to this country if we officially accuse China of human rights abuses inside mainland China as well as Hong Kong. They've warned about the consequences if uh, Meng Wanzhou isn't released by Canada after being detained and held in Vancouver on that U.S. extradition warrant. By the way, the Angus Reid Institute shows a majority of Canadians would think it's time to release her, even if it means contravening the, the, the treaty with the United States. Uh, but but Canada and our allies were described, if I understand this correctly, as white supremacists by China for calling for the release of the two Michaels. I think that particular ambassador, the former ambassador, went a little bit too far. And I, he wasn't directly disavowed, uh, but Beijing distanced itself publicly somewhat from his comment. He went too far. Uh, but they have been harshly critical. From my experience, you have to look very carefully at what they say. I know it all sounds very... Um, cloak and dagger. And, it sounds cloak yeah, and dagger. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But on certain things like Hmong, I think those threats have real weight. This is really 
gotten to them, the Hmong arrest. Mm. On other things, like don't criticize us on human rights, uh, we've been politely ignoring that to some extent for many years. So I think you have to be very, to read very carefully what they're saying and decide what are the issues that you can push on and where the real problems are. Of course, we have Hmong in custody now. She's there. Um, doesn't appear to be any, any likelihood in the near term that she'll be released. But that is the one which has really uh, got their blood boiling uh, compared to criticism on human rights, which really doesn't get into China itself. It's only heard by their leaders. So they don't look at it. They don't look at the, uh, the 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 realities of the detention. Hmong's detention in Vancouver is rather luxurious. The two Michaels detention in China is anything but. That 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 doesn't factor into their into their thinking at all, right? Well, I, I mean, we complained about that when we were there with our delegation. Sharply contrasted, yeah. she's not even under house arrest. She can during daylight hours or during the day she can roam around Vancouver, uh, go to parties, go to restaurants, shop, etc. Um, our two guys are in detention, have been interrogated for months and months, and haven't seen fresh air. There's a sharp, sharp contrast between the two. Let's get back to uh, our guest, Professor Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, who led a Canadian delegation to China three weeks ago. And uh, there's some rough patches between this country and China. Uh, Professor Holden, does this all emanate from the head of the Communist Party, Premier Xi or President Xi? Is he the man who ultimately calls all the shots, whether it has to do with Canada or the United States and Donald Trump? Is he the boss, ultimately? I think that President Xi is the most powerful Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping. So in a generation, uh, he stands alone as the, as the, uh, as the top dog. Uh, he has been... In, in power now um, as a party leader since 2012, as president since 2013. Uh, there, hey, there's no one, he's a greater among equals, but beyond that, really, he is not in complete control of everything. There still is a 90 million party members, and there is a standing committee, the Politburo, powerful individuals, but he is the heavyweight, no doubt. Now, if Meng is not released, and you told us that is what they expect, and certainly they've made it very clear, their ambassador has. Uh, if she's not released in the near term, what will they do? Do they not, do they not see that? I mean, we have an extradition treaty with the United States. Do they, do they just consider it that immaterial? We, we move that aside, we release her, and then things will even out more. There won't be threats like blocking canola or meat products. They'll just, things will return to more normal if we do that. Is that as fundamental as the situation is? I think that's really it. They have put their chips on Madame Meng, and I am skeptical that we can have a, a, a full recovery of the relationship. I don't mean like a warm, cuddly relationship, but just a return to where we were uh, before December 1st of last year. I don't think that can happen while she's still in custody. I think it's, it's quite frankly, as simple as that. Not that we wouldn't like to do it. We can explain about the extradition treaty endlessly, um, but I'm fearful that without that, on their side, and of course on our side, without release of our two Michaels, uh, there can't be normalization from our perspective either. Would you expect them to tighten the screws further on Canada? Well, I'm of two minds on that. I think actually they've overplayed their hand. I think that they thought, probably decision taken at the very highest level, that taking the two detainees would have us fold, or that it would at least... Um, change the situation. But what has happened 
you mentioned the Angus Reid poll, views of China have, have become sharply more negative, and there's been no movement. I don't think it's worked out for them, the detention of the two Canadians, in a way that they might have hoped or expected. How do they see themselves on the world stage? Well, it's changing. Under Deng Xiaoping, he, he had a saying that was to, um, uh, to hide one's strength and bide one's time. And Xi Jinping is now, I think, at a point, or he feels that China's at a point where it needs to begin to flex its muscles. It's not alone. The United States does that. Great powers tend to do that. Uh, but that is a change, and it's notably so under Xi Jinping. Now, China, uh, who, which isn't afraid to exert influence and to uh, call the shots when it is possible for them to do so. And their military certainly has uh, generated tremendous increased strength. Uh, I may be taking you off, uh, off off course here, but do you have concerns about about what may or may not happen militarily between China and, say, the United States or, or, or NATO nations? In the near to, to medium term, not so much. In the longer run, I do have concerns. Right now, China is spending about a third as much in the United States. They're still, in military terms, largely, not entirely, a regional power. Their, their force projection is concentrated in on the western side of the Pacific. Uh, but if you think longer term, um, I am concerned. I had a senior American diplomat tell me some time ago, he said, look, Gordon, uh, a war, an absolute war between China and the United States would, quote, spoil the 21st century. And when I saw him again last year, after a gap of about 15 years, he said, I haven't changed my mind. So I think in the longer run, when they begin to reach parity or come closer to it, uh, that could be a period of, of high tension. And what I hope we don't get into is another Cold War. I'd love to be able to exclude that, but there is a risk. Well, and if it were more than a Cold War, it might do more than just spoil the 21st century. Well, I guess that's what he's implying. He was saying, in effect, yeah. Yeah. an all-out war, uh, given it's that they already have an intercontinental nuclear force. They have, they have a space capacity. Um, they're trying to become, I don't think they're there yet in terms of quality. They're there in, in terms of quantity, in terms of numbers of, of soldiers and airmen and, and seamen, but not yet in terms of, um, of the quality of their weapon systems. But they're improving very rapidly. And uh, where they'll be in 20 years or 10 years, when they may have the largest economy on the earth, if they begin to spend at the rate the United States is doing, I think they could be catching up fairly quickly. Okay. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, it's terrible to contemplate uh, that sort of confrontation happening. Professor Holden, thank you so much for talking. Thank to you. you. Professor uh, Gordon Holden, the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.